This podcast is designed for you to discover more about who you are, to challenge your old adopted beliefs, and to expand your awareness of what's really possible. I'm Adam Esco, and this is The Unspoken Agreements. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Unspoken Agreements podcast. I'm your host, Adam Esco. Before we get into this week's amazing guest, Terry Knickerbocker, who I had just a fabulous time speaking with, I'll share a little bit about myself for those of you who don't know me. I am a life and leadership coach that gets to work with people in the workplace who feel unfulfilled. They feel like they are doing something that's not something they want to be doing every single day for the rest of their life. And they're more interested in either becoming a better leader for themselves or starting up their dream business. And they need help and support around that. And so that's where I come in and we work together to make that a reality for them. So if this is something that interests you, please reach out to me at adam at escocoaching.com. I also am grateful and like to share a little bit about the production team that helps me with this podcast. That's Truth Work Media, and I just can't say enough about them. They are fabulous to work with, Michael specifically. I've had such a great time working with him and want to thank him and his team for helping me with this podcast. If you're someone that wants support around this for yourself or your business, I would encourage you to reach out to them. So now it gives me great pleasure to introduce Terry Knickerbocker, who lives in Brooklyn. He runs his own studio and him and his team are extremely passionate about what they do every day and the actors they get to work with. They, You'll hear from Terry that giving his actors the experience and the training at the highest level of excellence is something that's he's deeply passionate about. This is a mission for him. This is a purpose. This is his calling. And he has shaped himself into the leader and the person that's able to deliver on what seems like the highest level of training an actor could go through. I even share in the episode that if I was an actor, even if I'm not, but any performer, I would absolutely love to be a fly in the wall, be a student of his um, because he is brilliant and and you're going to pick up on that really, really quick. And he's also a really brilliant storyteller. So I'm excited to share this episode with you and I hope you get a lot of enjoyment out of it yourself. All right, Terry, we were just off mic for about, she's 19 minutes. Uh, and we're just, I'm glad we just said, let's, you know, this is so good. Let's start recording this. So first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time. You are at the epicenter of the coronavirus right now. This will probably come out a little bit, maybe six, eight weeks after we talk, but uh, you're in Brooklyn. The world is changing. The rules are changing every day. And I'm really uh, excited for you to share a little bit about what's going on in your world uh, as you were just sharing with me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I have an acting studio for uh, sort of as an alternative to an MFA program here in New York, which really has some of the finest training for actors in the world. And um my, you know, we can't we can't be with each other in person, and this is a thing that happens with people together. And many of my students are also paying for this on their own. Some of them have help from parents, but most of them do it on their own uh, from their jobs. And many of my students have lost their jobs because they work in restaurants or bars or coffee shops or babysitting. And uh, I was sharing with you that uh, the week of uh, March 16th, uh, which was our spring break, we had to make a big decision about whether we would uh, pause the training until this was over uh, or go online, uh, which NYU and Harvard and Yale and every, every university went online. And we said, if they can do it, we'll do it, even though I didn't see how. And so I did a lot of research. I spoke to everyone I knew. I was on the phone. 
we called every single one of our students to get them on board because there was a lot of doubt and a lot of suspicion and are you just doing this for money and this isn't going to be as good and we lost uh, two out of 120 students which is to me just a real testament to the amazing power of my student body and my faculty and my staff and their faith in what we do and their belief in what they what we do and also their need in this moment to keep having some sense of purpose in their life and some sense of community so a bunch of them you know they said well i won't be able to pay and they said well you'll you'll owe it to us and when you get back on your feet whenever that is we'll we'll, we'll collect it and meanwhile we're paying our payroll um, we're paying our faculty. I actually just gave a raise to one of my staff because he has been so above and beyond throughout this in the last several weeks. Um, I just had to recognize him. And uh, so everyone's doing a great job. And the work we're doing, I, again, I, I never would have thought I was such a naysayer. I mean, how can you teach acting, movement, voice, stage combat? Uh, online. I called the stage combat teacher. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, we're not doing punches to each other, obviously, but we're working on mime, which I never knew was a part of stage combat. He said, it's a very underrated art form, but it actually sets you up to really be able to create what's not there. And we can work on katas, which are Japanese sort of martial arts forms. So he's teaching stage combat online, which is amazing. Um, my movement teachers are teaching movement. Obviously, there's no real contact between people, which happens in acting. But even, you know, I was on this call with 60 acting teachers online on a Zoom call on March 14th. And it was incredibly inspiring to have people from California and Texas and all these places talking about how they were going to do it. And this woman said, you know, this is how my husband and I dated for a year. He was in Cameroon and I was here. It's an incredibly intimate medium. And another woman said, yeah, my husband's on the road eight months a year. And, you know, we talk to each other every night this way. And she reached her hand towards the camera on her computer and said, sometimes I'll say to him, sweetheart, I want to touch your face right now. And as her hand came towards the camera, I felt it, right? And during that meeting, a fight broke out between two of the acting teachers. And, you know, they were, one was saying, you can't do it, it's not possible. And the other was saying, yes, you can, open your mind. And I got nervous. I was there like, whoa, wait, this is supposed to be a, a friendly, collegial kind of conversation. And it was passionate. And then all of a sudden, I kind of went, oh, my God, this is the work. We've got, we've got two people. They're fully in their bodies. They're fully in their feelings. They're working moment to moment off each other. It has meaning. It's alive. It's dramatic. It's engaging. And then I went, okay, this is going to work. This is going to work. And, of, and of course, I've been coaching through Zoom and FaceTime and Skype for like the last 15 years. When I have a client, Emmy Rossum, who I've worked with for 12 or 15 years, we did every episode that she shot of Shameless uh, on Skype, you know, because she's in L.A. and I'm here. Um, and, you know, how, how cool is it that my professional clients can't work now? I'm sorry about that, but my students can. I mean, it's amazing. Sam Rockwell was, was, was rehearsing American Buffalo, which was supposed to go into previews on March 24th. That got canceled when Governor Cuomo shut down Broadway theaters and any gatherings over 500. That's We don't even know if that show is going to come back. Emmy Rossum was shooting a new show for NBC Peacock. All my clients, all their work just got stopped and mm. we're, we're going, which is mm. kind of amazing. And so I really want to highlight this because this is something that everyone most people experience when there's some sort of adversity, uh, certainly around around the world, around where I am in the circles that I'm talking to. March 16th happens. You're you're going. There's this force change that that's going on. You know, new rules are coming out every day, and then there's this struggle with 
can we do this? Is this even something that we could do? It's not looked like anything that was done before. It's not going to feel the same. So there's this belief, self-doubt and belief struggle. And what I'm curious is what gets you over that hump to the point where you're like, okay, we're going to do this. What was it that that led to the decision for you and your team? Do you remember that? You know, failure was not an option. It just, I mean, what I was more nervous about, and if I really let myself spin out too far into time, I can get myself nervous about again, is are we going to be able to keep our doors open? Um, because without income, we run a very lean operation. We didn't have a lot of extra money in the bank. Without the income that we count on from new students, et cetera, we, this doesn't exist. But we've applied for all the CARES Act and PPP and I have a, a business line of credit that can help, you know, and Governor Cuomo said we don't have to pay our rent currently and there won't be any evictions below it, but we don't have to pay it at the moment so we can conserve capital. So once we sort of looked at spreadsheets and cash flow and all that and said, okay, we can, we can make this work, then it was just, let's do it. For me, it was a week by week thing. I said, let me do the first week. And I'm not like NYU. I don't have to keep going till the end of the semester. If, if after the first week, my assessment, the student's assessment, the other faculty's assessment was, this isn't working in the quality that we stand for, then we put a pause on it. Because the tagline of my studio is training the passionate actor committed to excellence. So it couldn't be half-baked. I was willing to accept it as different, but if I felt that the quality wasn't up to par, then no. It, you get into trouble if you try and compare it apples to apples. What's going to happen online on Zoom is not going to be identical to what happens in the room. No. But is good work happening? Because my teaching feels identical. Um, the only thing I can't get quite as tuned in is, as I said to you earlier, reading the room. It's very hard to read a Zoom room. Um, I can feel that when I'm in the room with, you know, my average class size is 20. So when I'm sitting there with 20 students, I can feel, are they engaged? Are they not engaged? Are they bored? Are they alive? Are they dead? That's harder to assess when you're looking at 20 people in 20 different environments, but that's the only thing. And it just causes me to kind of pay a different kind of attention. So that's a long answer to your question, but it, the main thing was failure was not an option. We just, my staff was all in, my faculty was all in. I got my students to be on board tentatively and suspiciously. The first week was kind of like with their arms crossed going, I don't know for many of them, I don't know if this is gonna work out. Some of them were like, thank you for doing this because I'm gonna go stir crazy, I appreciate it. But many of them were like, I don't know, man, this isn't going to feel right. And are you going to give me a discount? This shouldn't, you know. Earlier today, I was uh, on, on a, a Zoom call with Brian Levinson, who you were on the podcast and who ended up connecting us, uh, who connected the two of us to. And I, I, we're going to talk about what you guys spoke about on the podcast. There's some fascinating things in that Intentional Performers podcast. And we were, we were riffing back and forth on this very idea of through Zoom, and we were both talking about transformational uh, coaching, transformational experience through Zoom, we're missing that element of feeling the energy of the other person. And what I was curious about is the longer this goes on for, is it going to be a skill where you start to pick up more and more of that? Like you were sharing with the woman who uh, came towards the screen and, and, and then it got raw, you know, will that develop? I, I'm open to that possibility. What do you What do you think about that? You know, you get something, and in some ways, you get something you don't get in person, which is a close up. So, when I work with Emmy on Zoom or she likes Skype, um, I'm getting a close up of her face. When we're working in person at my studio, which because she's bi coastal, so when she's in New York, she'll come and work with me. Um, it's really nice to be in the room together. It's freer, I would say, in person is freer. Um, but I don't like get my face right next to her face and look at the pores on her nose. So I, th I think it's, I don't, I think any, you know, I'm doing 
therapy online. I'm in a group. I'm, I'm an individual therapy. It would be preferable to be in the room with the therapist and, and with my group, but I don't feel like my therapist should you know charge a discounted price for what we're doing. I feel like their presence is just as um, committed and everyone's doing the best they can. So I don't know if it'll get better or worse. I just think it's different. And if you have an open mind and make the most of it and are present and can tune in, I think the main thing is it's easy to get distracted and easy to get fatigued. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I appreciate that. And, you know, you mentioned that you're doing therapy online. You you t- seem to talk about it with this openness that, by the way, this candidness that's so appealing to me um, and based on my beliefs on therapy and the value there. Um, but it's not like that for everybody. Uh, it's, it's, it's still taboo in a lot of circles. It's still see, there's still some shame around it. It feels like for a lot of people and I know or you, mistrust or mistrust. Thank you. And I know you've done a tremendous amount of work and you uh, want your actors to be versed in that as well. Can you share a little bit about how it's affected you and your students? Yeah. Well, as a former teacher of mine used to say, are, are you allowed to swear on this podcast? Uh, swear away. Explicit welcome. Okay. So uh, she she's one of my mentors and a wonderful teacher and a uh, woman named Maggie Flanagan, uh, who has a studio in New York as well. But she's, she's, for the most part, retired. She teaches a master class a couple times a year. She's a brilliant firecracker of a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um. And she said, unless you had perfect parents, you're fucked for life, unless you do something about it. And the only thing she knew that worked was therapy, right? And so, um, you know, because everything gets passed down, you know, your parents aren't perfect because they didn't have perfect parents all the way back to everything's conditioned, yeah. So there's that. And so that's going to set up uh things that you're good at uh and things that uh you have blind spots around whatever that is sort of the negative what they call interjects which are like the the critical father or the mean mother or whatever or uh you know uh, i knew somebody who uh they had a very domineering narcissistic mother and um, their mother said to them, you know, don't you raise your voice to me, mister. I'm your mother. And so at that point, the child had to dis- disown their rage. Because the message from mom was, you, you can keep your rage, but you're going to lose me. Or you can keep me and lose the parts of you I don't like. What's more and fearful? Every, every kid is going to take the mom, even if it's a bad mom. And so that person's journey towards wholeness and reintegration was about reclaiming their discarded parts, which included anger. And acting plus therapy for that person was a lifesaver, not just an art form, but a lifesaver because they got to say, I have my whole self back and I have a safe place where all my parts are welcomed, the dark and the light. And uh, that, that actor got their voice back. That's brilliant. You know, so it's profound. And so, you know, I often say, because I encourage all my, you know, I say to my students, look, I don't get a cut. You know, I, it's not like I have an arrangement with therapists where I have a referral bonus. I don't care who you go to. I, I have some people I can refer you to. I have some uh, institutes that have sliding scale. You can find your own. Um, but get with somebody. Uh, and why am I recommending this? Because I know it's going to make you a better actor. Mm-hmm. Eric Clapton mm-hmm. knows every single square millimeter of his guitar. He knows the frets. He knows the strings. He knows how to use it acoustically. He knows how to use it electrified. He's a master of that instrument. For the actor, your body, your mind, wow. your heart, your voice make up your instrument. You're, you are the instrument. 
And so you have to have the most possibilities and you cannot act what you don't understand. So if you don't know, if you, if you say, why did I get, why did I have a fight with that person in the store? Why did I miss that appointment? Why, why, why? And that's just shrouded in mystery and you don't explore that and understand yourself, then you won't be able to access that for the purpose of your work, right? And so it's very important that you know every square millimeter of yourself emotionally, which is what therapy helps with, vocally and physically, which is what voice and movement classes are for. Um, and I can teach you the craft, but the instrument that does the craft, that's yours. So you have to do stuff about that. I, I, that resonated so deeply with me. I really appreciate your sharing there. I, I take that into my work. So, so stepping back, what you, what you said that was so meaningful was that the more inner work and introspection you do, the, the greater you realize, the more the blind spots you realize, the greater and the, the greater the range of possibilities become available to you. And as an actor, you are your instrument. So make as many possibilities so you could be as r- r- wide or as rangy as possible. But I also think for leaders, for, for many other people in any professions, you could kind of take the same message and say how advantageous would it be to and by the way this is not even this is from a functional standpoint let alone from a wellness and wholeness standpoint yeah yeah i just love that it also gives you uh, you know the the greatest quality an actor can have is empathy because uh, you cannot judge the people you're playing you actually have, you know if you're playing hitler you can't go oh he was a terrible person and he did terrible things to 6 million people. That's not going to let you play that guy. You have to actually step inside his shoes and say, what happened to that little boy in Vienna that led him to this profound, toxic understanding of Jews and life and whatever, right? Like what happened? Who is he? So it also opens up your compassion for yourself but also for all of humanity, right? If you walk by a, a homeless person on the street and uh, the flies are buzzing around them because they haven't bathed and uh, you can walk by with disgust, that's an option. Or you can walk by with compassion and, and, and say, wow, it, it must be so hard to be that person. How you doing? What do you need? Uh, give them a smile, give them a dollar, whatever. Uh, and it's really up to you. Do, do words like you talk about empathy and compassion? Do, do you throw the word non-judgment in there? What do you What do you feel of that word? Does that do anything for you? Well, that that seems to be. Uh, I mean, a little bit. I say you can't judge a character, so I don't use the word non-judgment. But I think that's mm. that's right in line with what I say. That that feels more related to spirituality, mm-hmm. just the way I think of that yeah. word. But uh, because uh, I actually want you that 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 feels a little um, uh, observational, right? And and I actually want uh, you know the best thing an actor can do is watch people, right? Actors are collectors, and you spend an hour in a coffee shop when we can get back to being in coffee shops, um, and you'll new, learn more about the human race than any book could tell you just observing people and getting curious about them and starting to wonder what kind of lives they lead and what kind of apartments they live in and what kind of social life they have. And yeah. yeah. Right. So, uh, you want the, there to the be judge- a, an emotional sticking involvement and curiosity and, and empathy and compassion and, and wonder, um, you know, and, and this thing of therapy, like if you don't work on it, it's not available to you. So, I've got plenty of students who, I mean, the soul, the heart and soul of drama is conflict. You don't have drama without conflict. You have a plane, a two engine plane and both plane engines are running. That's not dramatic. All of a sudden one engine cuts out. Now we got drama. Is the plane going to crash? You know, Sully Salzberger or whatever his name, Sullenberger, the guy who landed that plane on the Hudson. That's, that's the highest, you know, and Tom Hanks played him. I mean, that's the highest form of drama. Was that plane's passenger, are they going to die? No, he's a hero. He saved it. 
right? So you have to love drama and conflict if you're an actor. And I've got, I always have in classes, conflict avoidant people. They've, they've heard, if you don't have something nice to say to someone, don't say it. Mama doesn't like it when you raise your voice. Um, they're, they're terrified of conflict. And that's like saying, I want to be a scuba diver, but I don't want to get wet. Mm. Right? You mm. can't do it. So what we have to embrace in acting is that the imaginary world, which is where acting takes place, is safe. It has a different set of rules. In life, if someone stabs you, you might die. In acting, if someone stabs you, it's not real, and you can take a bow and then go home. In life, if you get cancer, you could die. In acting, if you get cancer, you might get an Academy Award. And so you have to embrace the inherent safety of the work because we also have a code in acting that's unwritten, which is mutual non-harm. If I'm in a scene with you where I hate you, where I want to kill you, if it's stage combat, that's created as an illusion. The feelings are just for that. I don't actually hate the actor. I hate the character. And then when it's over, we go out and have dinner. Right? And so you're free and you're safe. And it takes some time for some people to embrace that. And sometimes they never do, which means they have a very, very, very limited uh, set of possibilities as an actor. Yeah, you use words like freeing and and safety and i was thinking um that safety and built trust can really get you and this probably shapes a lot of the work that you do with your actors but really could get you out of your head and really let you be free to express you know in the way that you you could do it you better be out of your head you can't act you can't think an impulse Mm. you know it's it's an impulse it's funny, I, I taught at NYU, which is where I went undergrad back in the late 70s, early 80s. And when I went to NYU, it was not the world-class research university it is today. It was a safety school. Mm-hmm. But now it's trying to be, and, and in many ways is, on a par with any of the Ivy Leagues or with Stanford, University of Chicago. So the kids who come to the drama department where I taught for over 30 years, when we auditioned them, of course, they're also being evaluated for their SATs and essays and all kinds of stuff like that. I'm looking at their acting, you know, they're doing monologues and then we have a conversation. But NYU is not going to let in someone who's a wonderful actor, but doesn't have the intellectual and academic performance to be at NYU. So over the years, as NYU has risen uh, as an academic institution, some of the actors uh, that I worked with there are more in their head mm. because they lead a very schizophrenic existence there. Mm. Three days a week, they're training as actors, and two days a week, they're writing essays. Mm. Very um, prefrontal. Sure. Yeah. It's so them it's in those tricky. Moments. We have yeah. these cubby holes outside um, my studio where people put their stuff. And I said, for some people, I say, you know, you better leave your brain out there. You could pick it up after class, but uh, right now, you you know, I've got a guy who is a software engineer in one of my classes now. I mean, he is, it's so hard for him to drop into the work because he's so used to a different way of, of operating. He wants to be an actor. He quit his job and took all his savings and moved from California to here. I mean, it's an amazing story, but he's, and, and he works his ass off. But the hold his mind has on uh, his impulses, I mean, acting doesn't make sense in a logical way. Yeah. Yeah. And and how much do you think fear plays a role in that? It's everything. It's It's the biggest obstacle for, I think, everybody and everything. Yeah. You know, in your sharing now, going back to the podcast I heard with you and Brian, you talked about how you you grew up in a mixed household in terms of religion, your mom being an Orthodox Jewish woman and your dad, high Episcopalian. Our household, I grew up in a from a Jewish household, my wife from a Catholic household. 
uh, our upbringings were different. How do you, and this is talking really geared towards you, but how do you feel uh, that these religious beliefs and traditions impacted you and your journey? You know, I don't even know what the religious beliefs were. I mean, my mom grew up in an Orthodox household, but I didn't experience her as, I mean, we didn't, you know, keep, she kept kosher growing up, Mm. but not in our house. My dad loved, uh, I, I, I honestly don't know what his spiritual relationship was to Jesus and the Episcopal Church or any of that, but I know it meant a lot to him to go to church. Mm. Um, and I loved the rituals. Mm. I loved the music. I loved the incense. You know, the, org- the, the sound of an organ in a big church, you know, playing Handel's Messiah or anything is, and or... We just had Palm Sunday, you know, you'd get fronds of palms given to you and, and uh, the smell of the incense. I mean, just the sensual world of those rituals was uh, powerful to me. The actual spiritual beliefs were not really on the table. As a kid, were you that household. aware? Were you that aware and uh, able to, like the senses, were you that clear to that? Were you open to... I could smell it as if it was yesterday. My, when I was uh, seven, we moved from New York to Boston. Um, I'd gone to an Episcopal school in Brooklyn Heights, which I don't remember the church part of it, but I guess we went to that church. But I very much remember the school I went to and the church associated with it in, in Beacon Hill, Boston. It's called uh, Church of the Advent. And I think it was the biggest Episcopal church in, in Boston. And I was in the choir, so I remember the music. I remember the incense. I remember so much about that on a sensory level. Mm. Um, and I used to hold mass in my bedroom. I don't know if I talked about that, yeah, with Brian, sure. but I yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I I would put like a towel around me and be the priest, and I get a cup and put a little flat thing on top of it, and because I watched that every week, so I I you know it was, it was like memorizing a performance. <laughs> And I think I'd stolen one of the prayer books so I could look up what prayers you were supposed to say for communion and, you know, all that other stuff. And I'd get like some Ritz crackers and pretend that was the host and put water in the cup and pretend that was the wine. Because I actually wasn't allowed to partake in communion because one of the things which I, to a certain extent, still regret is that my parents didn't make a choice of which tribe they wanted me to belong in. So I was never bar mitzvahed, and I was never confirmed. Um, I never had that coming of age ritual that either of those religions had, which I, my mom explained, said, well, we want you to be able to make your choice. And you know, she always used to tell me the story of the singer Sammy Davis Jr. who converted to Judaism when he was an adult. And said, you know, you could be like Sammy Davis when you want to do it. You can do it, but uh, we don't want to force it. Did you receive that message, or was there an element of you that was confused? I know a lot of mixed religious families, there's this there's this fear there that the children are going to be either confused or not have an identity. Do you remember what that feeling Both. was yeah. like? Both, I yeah. Don't, I don't feel like I, you know, it forced me, if we look at it as an opportunity, in my grown-up years— to forge my own spiritual path that doesn't really have an affiliation with any particular place and has the philosophy inside me now that like we're all it, it's all one thing you know it's not like there's a Jewish God and a Catholic God and a Hindu God um, we're all part of the same big family and there are just many different approaches to tell the stories thank you thank you for that sharing I, I, I really appreciated that there was, but I don't know what to do with my son. You know, my wife is uh, Catholic Irish, and and I'm from this mixed thing. Which, if you go by Jewish, which is a matrilineal religion, so I'm Jewish. But uh, you know, he 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 knows about prayer, and I think you know we've been to India a couple times with him because I I go to an ashram there. Um, and sometimes he sits on the couch and pretends to meditate, but we're not forcing any particular dogma on him. And, and uh, I, think, I think the ethics of our life are the true spirituality, just how we, you know, starting with the golden rule, 
Um, I think that's a good way to live your life. And we talk about that with him. But where he'll go with that, we're, we're, not, we're leaving it open, which is what my family did. And when I was a kid, I resented that. So uh, I don't know what'll happen. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like you feel like some responsibility, even though you came from, you know, your parents may have felt that way and, and look what you found on your own. But as a parent now, it sounded like you, you kind of feel like there is some responsibility there. Is that, am I picking up with that correctly? Um, I, I worry, I don't want to do any damage. You know, you, you're a parent and you know that you don't, God, you want to, you want your kid to have a, a better life than you had and you, you want them to be safe and happy and healthy and all that. So I hope that by modeling integrity and ethics and love and compassion and I mean, I think the most important thing we do for our son is um, let him know that all his feelings are okay. We don't mind if he's mad at us. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be sad. And we just reflect that back to him. You know, we say you, you can't punch us. You can't like throw your toys at the wall if you're mad. So you have to be careful about actions. But we say, hey, but hey, buddy, you, you got big feelings there. Like <laughs> yesterday, so interesting. And I love this. This is just so my son um, is six. And for whatever reason, he's been having um, little accidents with pee during this epidemic. Um, so he changes his pants several times a day. Um, and not not big ones, just little tiny ones. And he's hypersensitive to that. So I I was talking to my therapist. I could see him out of the corner of my eye because there's the door to my office is open. He was coming and changing his pants. I said, hey, buddy, how you doing? Okay, I'm just changing my pants. So then I said to my therapist, you know, my son's been, um, I don't know whether he's acting out the stress of the virus, if that's what's going on or whatever. I just mentioned it for a moment. Six hours later, I come into the living room and he says, I'm mad at you. <laughs> and I said, why, man? What's going on? I said, you know. I said, I don't know. <laughs> you had no idea. You, you, I did, I had no idea. No you, you talked to someone about me and my, my pants. Wow. And yeah. I went, oh, did yeah. I, did you get embarrassed? I said, Yeah. I'm mad at you about that. And I said, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I understand why you're mad. And um, I was talking to my doctor about it because I was concerned. But I'm so sorry that you felt embarrassed. And will you forgive me? And he thought about it. He said, OK. And then we had a hug. And I was sort of like, God, this kid's great. Wow. And, and I'm proud of how my wife and I are raising him wow. to be able to have that kind of conversation totally. at the age of six. Totally. That's incredible. He's free. What an honor. I, I, this is not to have anything to do with your ego when I say this. I'm, I'm not tooting it. But an honor for a six-year-old to get that reflected back, that it's that he's heard, that it's okay to feel it, that yeah. he's safe. I mean, all the things that you crave as a child that parents aren't just maybe aren't yeah. equipped or capable of doing it and all that work you did and now you're able to to give him that is a is a real 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 gift um that's it's amazing and I'm, I'm so glad you see that that feels nice wow i want to ask because i know adam that at least yeah. when we spoke and um i know you used to work full-time as a dentist are you doing any dentistry still so dentistry so this is april 8th 9th something like that right now yeah. we're recording this yeah there is only emergency dentistry going on in our state in the Virginia, Maryland, DC area. Yeah. Um, that being said, I am doing so I have I actually haven't performed any dentistry. I'm working I was working two days a week prior to um when our most recent son, who's now seven weeks, was born. So I haven't done I haven't done any dentistry for seven weeks. Um and I'll just be 100% honest with you, I am not missing it one lick. Uh, my wife also, who is a dentist, she's a prosthodontist, she uh, 
was planning on going back after maternity leave in May, it, it'll be a little bit, you know, interesting on when she goes back. But um, she, if someone, and this is this is a conversation we could actually have. Uh, I had realized late in my career, early in my career, middle of my career, whatever you want to call it, that I just didn't like working with my hands. I became yeah, decent yeah. at a skill that I just was not interested in doing forever. And she is someone who's a real artist in terms of mm. her hand skills. And she really gets enjoyment, fulfillment in the, the creativity process, creatively expressing herself in that way. Um, that I never felt, uh, and that's what I want to ask you now about. Because I remember in your in your episode and you're sharing with Brian, and you were talking more about how you used to go uh, to shows growing up with your parents, some very eclectic, kind of not necessarily well known shows, and now you had this experience that you were just sharing with us uh, through mass and performing. I, I was trying to get a sense of did your early experiences condition you the nurture side to really love uh performing love acting or was it a blend of what was in your soul and your spirit the in that expression can you i have no idea i don't i don't know how mozart and i don't compare myself to mozart but i've always been curious about uh, nature versus nurture and you know, how did he write a symphony at age seven? Well, his dad was a musician. So did he hear music in the womb? Was it in the environment? Was it a combination of innate ability in him plus conditioning? I don't know. Um, but it's funny. Um, my my dad, uh, when, I, when I take attendance with the students, I always say their name and then they will greet me back. And that actually is... Uh, a real um, assessment tool for me. What's that sound like? What does that, that sound I'll like? I'll go like, I don't know, I have a, I'll pull out. One of the things I did when I was getting ready to go online was I, I took, my wife and I took the car to the studio, which was locked down, to get uh, my attendance book because I thought it was very important to have continuity as we started mm-hmm. just for the ritual. So I'll just pick a class. So I'd go, Gianna and then I'll look at them and I do it on zoom but I do it in the classroom and she'd say hi Terry or something like that you know and then I'd say Rivers hi Terry (laughs) Ellen etc and sometimes I'll say you sound a little tired or uh, um, or whatever like that the voice gives me a lot of feedback so sometimes people say hey Terry and I will say back to them Hay is for horses. <laughs> now, that's something my dad used to say to me, <laughs> right? I'd say, hey, and he'd go, hay is for horses. Now, my dad was a very formal fellow. He did mm. the crossword puzzle. He was uh, number one in his class in law school. He was uh, also had a master's in history from Harvard and um, went to Cornell for law school and, and very formal person he loved uh, music but he'd say that to me so i say that back to them now sometimes they don't know whether i'm like scolding them <laughs> but they sometimes have that they don't know what it is and and so <laughs> here i was at home during zoom classes and i'm getting to your answer about theater in a very roundabout way and and uh so i'm doing attendance on zoom and someone says hey terry I say hey is for horses and i said you know I wonder if you know the the origin of that. Um, and then I have an eight by ten. My my dad died in two thousand ten at the age of ninety, and um, I have an eight by ten frame photograph of him in a tie, looking very groomed, probably in his early sixties, so my age now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I held it up to the camera. I said, "It came from my dad. This is him." So I shared my dad's picture with the class. And then I talked about him a little bit. Uh, and I said, you know, my dad was, um, I mean, he was a lovely fellow and he and my mom, uh, instilled culture in me and took me to theater. Uh, and we went to Broadway shows and we, we did a lot of theater and they really always encouraged. I mean, basically they wanted me to be happy. I think. And, but when I showed an interest in 
acting. I was in a play and my mom would help me learn my lines back in eighth grade. And uh, I went when I was going to school in Cambridge, Boston's a big hockey town. And so I started to get into hockey. So they got me hockey skates and uh, they always supported anything I wanted to do. And, and so I had a very, it was such a nice gift for me. It's so nice actually to be at home because uh, not that I want to be at home teaching, but like there's the picture of my dad and I can show it. And, or if they're working on a particular play, I don't always have that play in front of me at school, but I have my whole library here and I can pull the play out and look it up and go, oh, here's what the playwright says. So I think that there's no way I'd be doing what I was doing if it weren't for the complete belief in the power of art, maybe not the power of art, the, the value of art um, in our household. And my mom had, had trained as a classical musician. So we had a piano, a beautiful baby grand piano that was her piano. And she played and my dad played and um, my sister took lessons growing up as a kid. I, I more gravitated to the guitar, which is still my instrument of choice. But Briefly, I took some piano lessons. And so they were just all about, and, you know, we didn't even have a TV till I was, you know, in junior high or whatever. And TV wasn't it, but I, I went to movies and, and that was fun. And, uh, but, but really theater had tremendous value and singing, being in the choir, you know. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you, uh, and and maybe what gravitates me towards talking to you and 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 hopefully establishing a relationship with you is obviously you're a performer, you're an actor, you care deeply about the arts. But I just whenever I listen to you talk, I'm like, man, this guy must be the best fucking teacher ever. Like I would love to have you as a teacher, someone who's just so introspective and loves to share and and makes you really think and, and work and get you out of your own head. Like what a gift. I mean, your, your actors are living the dream. If they don't know it, they, they, they will. And they probably thank you later, but that would have been heaven for me. Really? That's really, what, what makes you say that? I mean, you're, I, I was trying to think if he wasn't, when I was asking the question, if he wasn't an actor, if he didn't get into acting, this guy would have been a teacher for sure. I mean, you just seem to like want to share and, and learn and and then express it and, and let others have that. Um, and you cared so deeply about your own self-awareness and your growth and therapy. So, you, but you don't want to keep that to yourself. It's clear with, with what you built uh, and, and, and you, you know, just you listening to you talk. I'm like, this guy just is a teacher at heart and, and it's, it's wonderful. So funny. You know, my dad was a teacher. I mean, he was a, a tax lawyer. Um, but he, as I said, he, he went to grad school for history. Um, and I think he wanted to be a history professor and then somehow, uh, law presented itself 10 years after he graduated undergrad. So he didn't go right in. Um, but he taught a law, he taught at Boston university and then, uh, he taught at Seton hall, uh, in New Jersey. He taught at, uh, New York law school. And I know that teaching was very meaningful for him. Um, and I was always afraid to teach because it, I, I had had a, a, a very bad acting teacher when I was an undergrad at NYU. And he was very mean. Um, he was brilliant, but he was cruel. And I remember uh, something he said once, he's dead now, but, uh, and, a, and a very important, acting teacher he uh, and director he uh, founded a theater that's very important and um really knew his stuff but could be a little cruel and he said once to a young freshman actor so 18 years old um and he was greek he said why don't you pick something more suitable for your talent like maybe accounting right now I mean, when I think of that, it rips through my guts because they're basically saying, uh, don't call us, we'll call you, you picked the wrong profession. And that 
made me afraid to teach in case I would do damage, but also made me also vow to never write somebody off because you never know when something is going to uh, sprout roots and grow. There are all kinds of late bloomers. I don't think it's, I, I, I've never said to an actor or a student in my life, I don't think you're an actor. I have thought it privately. I have sometimes in faculty meetings at NYU um, had those conversations, you know, where we go, hmm, and, and, and we look for, okay, what would the strength be? Maybe they're more of a writer or a director or whoever, right? They really struggle in the freedom and the embodiment that acting calls for. So I was always hesitant to start teaching because I thought you needed to be really careful. You know, someone's get, letting you hold their heart and their, and their soul. And I came to teaching, I was, you know, I was all in on acting and then sort of fell into directing plays and went, oh, I like this even better than acting because I get to be in charge. And I like, I like the idea of like deciding what costumes people are going to wear and where they're going to go and, you know, the control freak in me, but also the kind of Orson Welles in me that wants to kind of design Steven Spielberg, like design the whole thing was really excited about directing. But then I realized very early on that theater directors can't make a living. You know, the theater pays you in hugs, right? No, no actor nowadays can make a living just in the theater. Um, they always have to either do commercials or film and television and bounce back and forth. So how do directors make money? Uh, one way was to work for a theater, like a nonprofit theater, like in DC, you have the arena stage um, or the Olney Theater in Maryland, I think you still have maybe, yeah. But no theaters in New York needed anybody. Like you'd be on staff like as a literary uh, director or an assistant artistic director or something like that. And meaning you'd have a, a salary and then you could also direct. So that didn't work out. And then another way was to direct soap operas because there were soap operas being made in New York and a lot of theater directors directed soap operas, you know, freelance. So I, I shadowed on a show called The Guiding Light. Somehow I had a connection that was a director and I got to be on set all day. And for me, uh, it was a horrifying experience, like just nothing personal happening. I, just, I can't do it. It's just not my, it's just not. It's not me. Um, and, and so that didn't work out. And then the third way was to teach. So I went back to my teacher, who's a, a wonderful, amazing, iconic teacher named William Esper, who died at the beginning of last year, uh, and said, I want to learn how to teach. And he said, I don't need any teachers. Um, and I said, well, how about I just stay till you ask me to leave? And that was a 32-year stay. Um, and it was the old-fashioned, and he had studied with the, 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 the leader of my particular lineage, a guy named Sanford Meisner, who was a genius, a genius at teaching and uh, developed this technique, which is so useful and so amazing and has helped thousands and thousands of actors for years. And it just made the most sense to me. So. I started teaching to help me direct, to support my directing. That was the idea. Um, but I fell in love with it. And I let go of directing. I didn't, I don't, I don't seek out directing opportunities. I haven't directed professionally in at least 20 years. I have no interest um, for the most part. And I really get off on helping actors learn this craft and specifically um, realize their potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That, that, that seems to be full alignment from what I'm picking up from you. Uh, and I can imagine that the absolute joy that you get from it. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you is going through this time where you've had to pull all your resources, you and your, your amazing staff, to make this session happen with the group of actors that you have, does that provide any additional meaning to you? Like, oh actually? my God, I'm so proud. 
And I don't often feel proud of myself. Um, it's just, I mean, it's not that I feel badly about myself, but I, I tend, I, you know, I'll feel, I think feeling satisfied is um, a good enough feeling for me most of the time. But when I take inventory of how we just knuckled down and I provided the leadership for that and my staff, thank God, because they're extraordinary, um, uh, was willing to follow uh, and my students were willing to follow. I mean, my community, I'm just so fortunate to have cultivated um, you know, I, 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 every actor I work with, we, we meet by uh, uh, interview. Most acting studios, if you have a MasterCard and a heartbeat, you're in because everyone needs to pay their rent. But we're actually very picky because it's a two-year journey. And so, you know, just last week I interviewed someone on FaceTime. And at the end, you know, I said, I, I kind of want you to be a little scared when we talk. Uh, not because I want you to feel bad, but I, I want you to know what a big deal it is to do this. And it's an all-in proposition. And if you have any doubt, it would be good to figure that out now instead of halfway through the journey, because I won't be able to replace you and there'll be a hole in the class where you used to be. And the next day he said, it was great to meet you, but it doesn't feel like the right fit for me. And I was there like, great, good for you. Thank you for figuring that out and and i wish you all the best i'm sure things are going to work out so um i'm so lucky to have this amazing community and i do feel very proud of myself for just diving in to make this work it's it was it was the hardest week of my life uh march 13th 14th through the 22nd and then the second hardest was the next week when we started online because I had to, it was a heavy lift to get everyone on board. And uh, a lot of cheerleading, a lot of engagement, a lot of listening, a lot of, you know, listening to people's gripes and fears and resentments and wonder. And I was draining, um, but so worth it. And, you know, last Saturday, just a few days ago, my January class, did work that was stunning like it was just an exhilarating class uh, online and i'm so proud of them and i just feel so much love for my staff and my students i wish i could name every one of my students but i'm going to name my <laughs> staff my my manager is Kristen brown uh, justin Semino is uh helps with uh, customer service he's a customer service guru um heather craig um uh was hired to do admin work but has pivoted to doing video editing which we had a whole backlog of video editing and she's been uh, just killing that and coming up with some great stuff for us and then uh, emma welch uh, she calls herself grape welch as in welch's grape juice has been doing our social um so that's the, they're amazing my faculty is amazing i can't name all of them because there's so many of them but uh what a community and uh, what a, what, what a great thing. I'm just, I, I feel blessed, you know? Yeah. It's pouring out. It's pouring out. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling, it. I've got a big smile on my face, by the way, I'm good, just kind of half laughing. Like you could hear, you know, just the sense of, uh, like you said, pride and community, like these values of, you know, unknown, right? Just putting in so much work and effort and then like just the giving and then the receiving the love and then the love. And then I also hear when you share a lot about that those that first Zoom or whatever platform you're using experience with your your actors, all you guys together, and people are are you just giving everyone the space to vent it out, to express themselves. Let's get it out first, and it takes a, a leader that's able to hold the space provide that and then what comes out of it is is like you said one of the best sessions you've ever had and who knows what's going to come from that also so bravo yep it's fascinating and i was telling you off air but i just want to you know this is hard to do for them because they need uh never mind that we're in a kind of a collective trauma right now which we don't know when it's going to be over and there's questionable leadership at the head of our country uh 
as we go through this, which is just stressful. And, you know, from a health and economic perspective and just being cooped up. And I mean, my biggest stress right now is getting online groceries because every time I go online through, we have, you know, Prime Now, which is Whole Foods, there's no delivery available. Not the, there are no delivery windows, right? And so that's, you know, we got food, we, we have food, but that's, that's my biggest stress. But these kids, some of them, they all went, some of them are still in New York, but many of them went home to California, Arkansas, Virginia, Maryland, uh, North Carolina, whatever. And this one girl, it's very hard when you've been working to grow and to become yourself, to go back home. I don't know mm. if you ever felt this growing up, that you felt like a different person in your parents' house as you were starting to individuate yourself. Like you were starting to become a different person, and then you went home, you and revert. it's kind of like it, it you regress it and revert, and it sort of sucks you in, yeah. right? Yeah. So this girl, who's wonderful, she's in her early 20s or 25 or whatever, um, but presented as a kind of a little girl had a little girl persona when she first started and now she's really blossomed into a full-grown woman into in inter, internally right and the first thing that her mother said when she got home was you're taller now literally that was true because she'd sort of shrunk herself and our movement teachers had mm. helped her to find her alignment and her size but also as a human being she was taller and then she you know, shared that it was very hard for her to maintain her individuation, her power, her adulthood in a milieu that was craving her to go back to being the little girl that they could, you know, play house with. Yes. So that's hard to be home trying to be your full self in your parents' house or with your boyfriend or with roommates or whatever. So bravo to my students who are fighting the good fight under less than ideal conditions in their homes to do this work. Well, Mary, that's that's a fantastic plug for the, for her and acknowledgement for something that could be extremely, she has to be extremely conscious of, you know, fighting those values of what was instilled and conditioned from her parents and honoring them if that's something that's important to her versus honoring herself and what's within and the work that you guys it's are hard. doing together. Ooh, you want to be a good, the, you want to, you want to be yourself and you want to be a good daughter. Right. That's such a wanna... tug and pull. How do you? And then plus you're living there, right? You're not even, you don't yeah. even have the control if that's an issue yeah. to you to leave. And they're giving, they're giving you, they're putting a roof over your head. Right. And they're putting food on your plate. So then does that mean I owe you to be a different person than I've become? I mean, it's so complicated. Yeah. So, it's so, you know, got to be grateful, but at the same time, like, you know, can you still do, take care of yourself or do you have to play this tug and pull? That is yeah. That is a, that's going to take a, that's going to take some working through Terry. I, there was, there was more, there was more here. There was a lot more. Um, but, uh, I, I'm gonna have to have to save that for, for another day when I reach out to you, cause I am curious to, to hear more about you and, and that's just nice. Adam, you know, yeah. you are a gifted questioner. You, um, are, are, are sweet and sensitive and a good listener and, um, I have not gotten tired or distracted for a moment. Uh, you're easy to talk to, and and you're, um, you know, I'm thinking of like Dick Cavett, who was a wonderful conversationalist, or or Charlie Rose before his scandals took place. Uh, I was listening listening to Charlie Rose interview uh, uh, an actor this morning, Anthony Hopkins, and he just made such space for the other person to sort of unpack their bags. And that's how I've experienced you. So I thank appreciate you. those words. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to accept that. I, I really appreciate that. I, I, again, I would love, and maybe one day I, if you're accepting coaches, Dennis, whatever, I don't know what I'm going to call myself, but, uh, you know, love to be just a fly in the wall in your studio. Um, whether it be remote or in person, no more in person, by the way. Yeah. Uh, well, I have a dentist right now uh, in my class, and um, I think this training is great for everybody. And so even like the six-week summer session, it's, a, it's an exploration of uh, craft and clarity and humanity and listening and responding and intimacy 
and going for it in the full-on way. And uh, it's boot camp, boot camp for, for passion. Yeah. 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 So where can, so this, we'll end with this. Where can everybody find you? Thank you. Uh, well, my studio email address or studio uh, web address is terrynickerbockerstudio.com. That's all one word. And Knickerbocker spelled like the basketball team with a K in front. I think we're at, uh, geez, I don't know, on Instagram. I think it's, let me just look. Uh, and we'll have it on the show notes just, just in case. Sure. But. I'm just going to peek. Uh, but we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, but not so actively. It's Terry Knickerbocker Studio, all one word, on Instagram. We have a lot of fun on Instagram. Um, and you can write info at terryknickerbockerstudio.com, and we'd love to hear from you. We train the passionate actor committed to excellence. That's our whole thing is excellence. Everything we do, we want to do the best we can. I totally sense that as an absolute alignment. Oh, Terry, thank you so much for taking the time. This was this was a lot of fun for me. And uh, My pleasure. Yeah. It's my pleasure. I feel lighter. Yeah, yeah um, me too. I think my cheeks yeah. are starting to hurt a little bit. I was smiling for like, oh, when you were ranting nice. off your team, I'm like, this is such a treat. This guy cares so much. This is... I want to just read you at the close. I got a text. I told you I gave one of my staff members a raise, yeah. and he sent me a text while we were speaking. Terry, feel so deeply grateful for the raise, especially because I know money is tight in this time. Kristen, who's my manager, who gave him the raise for me, uh, Kristen talked to me about value, meaning that's why we're giving this to you, because you have such value. He says, I have worked for many entities and bosses before who have not understood valuing their people at all, and truly you and TK Studio better than I've ever seen. It teaches me as I continue to learn to lead myself. Thank you again, onward. I mean, Oof. what an amazing confirmation Oof. of what we're trying to do. Yeah. That makes words. me happy and makes it worth it. Yeah. Let's go internal, deep, deep in the yep. heart area. I feel that right now, uh, welling up. That's yeah. beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Great. And, and hug your kids. Yeah, yeah, uh, likewise. Not just you, but everybody. Uh, oh, right. Thank right. you. Adam, what a what All a right. what an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Terry. Talk soon. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. If something resonated with you and you'd like to share it, please email me at Adam at Escocoaching.com or send me a message on social media.